Hello and welcome back to Biomes, episode 5 of this second season, sponsored by Microbiome Insights. Now, when you hear the phrase gut microbiome, or even just microbes, you most often think about bacteria, don't you? However, a huge proportion of your intestinal microbes are other types of microorganisms like viruses, archaea, and fungi. These other microbes, however, have been studied in much less detail than bacteria, and we know less about what they're doing to your body. And this is fascinating if you think about it, as there are many more viruses, for example, in your body than there are bacteria, but we just know much less about them. In this episode, I speak with Dr. Marie-Claire Arietta of the University of Calgary. Dr. Arietta is an expert in intestinal fungi, especially in younger children. We know that in infants, gut bacteria is important for the development of their immune system, but her research has shown how important different types of fungi are. She has shown that these gut fungi may help prevent children developing asthma in later childhood. We discuss this research about these neglected gut microbes, myths and realities of the notorious candida species in the gut, and the exciting future of microbiome research beyond bacteria. This season of Biomes is sponsored by leading microbiome services provider Microbiome Insights. Microbiome Insights provide end-to-end microbiome sequencing and bioinformatics services, including assessment of the fungal microbiome using ITS2 sequencing. Find out more at microbiomeinsights.com and mention this podcast to get your free study consultation. Well, Claire, thank you very, very much for for agreeing to to have a chat. It's great to chat you all the way from Calgary and uh, learn about what you're doing um, with the fungal microbiome. So how about we just start off and let me know uh, a little bit about your background in microbiology and microbiomes. From what I read, you were kind of originally involved in kind of medical, clinical microbiology and then looked at IBD and now you're kind of very much involved in infant microbiomes. So where did you start and how did you get to where you are now? That's that's right. So my initial background is in clinical microbiology. Um, for grad studies, I was involved in um, gastroenterology science, so understanding that the physiology and the immunology of, of the GI tract and um, how important it is for, for health, um, not just in the gut, but also in other parts of, of the body. So um, I finished my PhD uh, in around 2010, and this was around the time where those first large microbiome studies were coming out. And you know, here, um, here we were trying to study the 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 gut and all the ins and outs of of it and how it functions, that what it does. But for the longest time, I think that GI research was not really paying attention to this very large amount of, of microbes that, that normally resides there um, permanently. And um, from my microbiology background, I, I became really interested in trying to, to study that crosstalk because of, of how the, 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 the gut functions 
and and how this massive amount of microbes contribute or not to to its functioning. Um, so I decided that I wanted to do a postdoc going back to microbiology and, and to try and, and study that the microbiome and understanding that that um, at least until now, in order to study it, um, we needed to apply a sequencing and bioinformatics methods. And then I didn't have any training on that. I was mainly a you know, classic molecular biologist and, and microbiologist up until then. So I moved to um, Vancouver and this is when, when I became part of, of uh, the Finley group. And he was at the time one of the few people that was looking at this. And in collaboration with, with other microbial ecologists at UBC, we started studying the gut microbiome of babies. Um, and then that really, I, I became fascinated by it. Now I was able to, to really um, mix my knowledge in, in, in GI biology with, with what we're learning, this very new science of, of the microbiome. Um, and very interestingly, coming to, as more studies started to happen at that time, coming to the conclusion that, that early in life is a very important period for both GI functioning um, in, in general body development, but also in terms of the ecology of the microbiome. We're born without one and, and, and we start to gain microbes as we age very, very rapidly. And there's a lot of, of um, ecological shifts that happen early in life of, of which we still know very, very little. And our body and many of our systems rely on that initial colonization to, to finish its training, if you may, or, or its development. Um, so I, I knew that there was going to be, you know, years and I guess careers worth of, of um, knowledge there and decided to stay in, in that field. Great. So you were really at the at the beginning of all of this, you were kind of have been there from the from the start almost, uh, and, and watched the field grow. Yeah, within that first um, within that first. Although I think that truly microbiome science um, started before it merged into the clinical science of, of things, right? And there's there's pioneers that were merely merely interested in, in in studying microbial ecologies in, in the environment. Those are the really pioneers, and those started a bit earlier than that, maybe 10 years, a bit more, 10, 15 years yeah. earlier. Um, but yes, when it started becoming more integrated into medical science, I became part of that, yes. Great. Well, whether it was the, at the start or not, I think you've kind of carved, carved your own niche anyway in the field. Um, because for years now, since we've appreciated the complexity of the microbiome and its diversity, you know, most of the focus has been on the bacterial component. You know, all these numbers are thrown around that we have over a thousand bacterial species in the human gut. We're, you know, 99%, you know, bacterial genes, uh, or whichever way you count these things. Uh, but really, there's, there's a lot of uh, unknown microbial matter living inside us as well. And one of that is, is definitely all the fungi uh, that live inside of us. And, and little less is, is known about that, but a lot of your work has, has focused on that in, in recent years. So what can you tell us kind of to start off very basically about the, the fungal microbiome in the gut? You know, what relative contribution does it make to the gut in terms of how much is in there what are the main species and you know do they remain stable over time mm -hmm. um well in general fungi are extremely successful forms of microbial life right they're in every terrestrial and aquatic environment that they've been um, looked out um, and 
And as with any other ecosystem, the gut also has fungi. So there's nothing surprising there. I think as you say, what was surprising is that until now, probably because microbiome is such a new science, at least uh, human gut microbiome, people were paying more attention to, to bacteria and rightly so, there's, there's just too many of them there. Um, but with any ecosystem, fungi as well as other forms of microbial life are part of this ecosystem. Um, the interesting part about fungi, and this comes from uh, the field of infection biology, so that mycologists that have studied fungi for years now, is that we know that they have other mechanisms of potentially gaining access to the host and that our immune system and other systems have specific, different, distinct mechanisms to, to um, recognize them and to identify them and then to react. So the way we react to a fungal infection is not the same way that we react to a viral infection or a bacterial infection. In some ways it's similar, in some ways it's not. Um, and another part that that got me really interested, uh, and this was at the time that I was having babies myself, my, my kids are a bit bigger now, is that um, yeast um, infections in babies are more common than in, in older people. Uh, and uh, I became just really interested in, in trying to study that. So what happens, you know, early versus later and, and what happens to fungi during our lifespan? And rightly so, when we started studying them um, in a couple of cohort studies, and, and now when we study them in, in, uh, in mouse studies as well, we have found that fungi are pretty adept at forming part of the gut. But that initial colonization phase is a pretty unstable phase. That ecosystem hasn't really established. And there's a lot that can happen that can change the, 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 the state of that ecosystem until it reaches a, a more balanced state or more stable state. And one of those factors that can do this is, is the presence or absence of, of fungi. So that's one of them. Another one is how fungi can respond to perturbances to that ecosystem in the form of, of um, an infection or in the form of, for example, an antibiotic. So one of the things that we're studying and that we're learning now is that fungi, just like bacteria, respond um, actually quite quite strongly to, to things that may happen early in life. And by doing so, they, they may cause a, a result or, or they may lead to, to a different immunological response. Now, in parallel to this, one of the things that um, we know now is that early in life, there's, a, there's this critical period of time during which the immune system, not just the immune system, but we're speaking about the immune system now, but the immune system is very responsive to signals. It's, it's, it's almost eager to learn. It's, it's very permissive also of, of changes. Um, so those alterations that may happen in the ecology of the microbiome may have a, a stronger or a more longer lasting consequence if they happen at that moment than if they were to happen later in life. And what we're finding now is that fungi are part of this group of, of signals that can, um, that can result in, in these immune education or miseducation events. Um, so we're, we're now in the, in the midst of that, only beginning. I started my group uh, about four years ago, but learning a lot because um, not that many people are studying fungi, although it's changing more. <laughs> I, see more I see slightly more yeah. uh, studies coming out, but it's, it's really neat because it's very new. So there's a lot of potential of discovery. Wow. 
So, so it's similar, you know, we, we know a lot about bacteria that are acquired in that early period of life, which you're studying. Um, how does that work with fungi? What are the, the first fungal colonizers of the gut? And where do they come? Are they coming from the mother as well? Is it the mother's gut? Is it mother's vaginal uh, fungi species? Or ha have those studies been done to track where the fungi are coming from and, and what exactly they are at the very start of life? So tracking studies in order to really understand where um, bacteria are coming from, they require pretty high resolution sequencing or genetic based studies, right? Because you're, you shouldn't just follow the species, but you really have to follow strains. And those have definitely been done for bacteria. They have not been done for fungi. Now, uh, there have been studies at the species level that have compared the type of, of fungi that we have in, in stool versus the, you know, where else do we find them? What we find in, in fungi is that, yes, just like bacteria, we'll have different fungi in our skin and different fungi in, in the case for women in our vagina as well. But um, one of the different things, if we compare that to bacteria, is that we have more fungal species able to inhabit different parts of our body. They're, they're, they can be less specific. And what's really interesting is that many of them are free living fungi too. So they live in the environment. They can be found in all sorts of, 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 of places. And that actually mimics what has been described in, in other ecosystems as well, in other you know, um, environmental ecosystems as well. So um, where are they coming from? We exactly don't know, but based on the species similarity, we speculate that they're, they're definitely being caught up from the uh, vaginal canal because there's a lot of Canada species there and those have been described in that body site for a long time. Um, there's also a skin Organism. So one of the ones that we're studying quite a bit, um, it's, it's a quite interesting microorganism, is, is this yeast known as Malassezia. It's been, uh, you know, it's been found in, in skin as well as the environment, but it's been found in, in skin for a while. And now we're finding it in, in the gut as well. Now, another important difference that we're still, you know, in the process of, of trying to make is which fungi are truly God dwellers and which ones are just transient, which mm -hmm. ones are we just finding because we're measuring stool. So with mice, we're able to ask those questions and, and we find that, um, at least if we focus on the mice, there's, there's cases for both, right? There's some that we can continue culturing from the stool um, and that we can find actually living in, in the gut mucosa, but some of them are, they just passage through the gut and this passage appears to be shorter, sh short-lived. Um, we're not there yet to fully understand this in humans. We would speculate that there's some very um, abundant yeasts like Candida species or even Malassezia species that are truly dwellers of the gut. Whereas there's some other ones that because fungi are everywhere in the environment, it's also easier to find their genetic material in, in the gut as well. That's really interesting because you don't tend to see it that as, as commonly for bacteria. You know, bacteria seem to be more um, niche specific, I suppose. There's bacteria that have evolved and, and can only really survive in conditions like the gut. I mean, I'm not talking about every species in the gut, but quite a number of them. Whereas you're saying that fungi seem to be able to adapt. Is that because they are more complex organisms that they, they're able to have these 
genes or whatever it is to be able to survive in let's say in beer or in bread and also in in the gut or in soil absolutely absolutely they're a lot more prophetic they have bigger genomes they have a more sophisticated machinery to use different types of nutrients and survive in different environments um, there's a lot of fungal species that we're finding that yes they can survive in anaerobic conditions not as well but they will do so for a long, long period of time. Um, whereas for bacteria, some of them, especially some of the ones that have been described in, in our guts, they're strict anaerobes, right? And they have mechanisms of survival in the environment, right? But, but what we're finding with fungi is that, yeah, you kind of tend to find them everywhere. And because of that, you have to be a lot more careful in, in not assuming that they're living there and that they're um, part of that ecosystem from a permanent point of view. Right. And do you have any idea how our fungal microbiomes have changed over time? We know a lot of these interesting studies showing us how our microbiomes are, or bacterial parts of our microbiomes anyway, are becoming less diverse. You know, if we look at these hunter-gatherer tribes and look at their bacterial microbiome, they're way more diverse. They have all these species that we seem to have lost. And there's also these other really complex, like, worms and other kind of more complex organisms where which people in kind of very rural settings like that tend to uh, contain in their gut and we don't tend to contain them in in the western world so yeah. what do we know about that with with fungi have we lost fungi in our gut are we acquiring different ones with westernization or how has that changed historically as we i suppose industrialize more yes uh it seems that that's the case although there's very few studies we've been involved in one of them but yes so different fungi that have been found in babies in south america compared to canadian babies and uh less fungal sequences that have been found in the canadian babies although uh, you find them so they're, they're there it's not they're completely missing but but yes i would speculate that there has been a reduction and also a shift in the type of fungi that we acquire of course when one compare uh when one compares to different places that um you know different in socioeconomic conditions or in industrialization sort of parameters one also has to take into account that there are also different geographies right so uh, one of the things that that would really change the type of of life including microbial life that you find in in a place in this case was in ecuador and it was in a tropical spot very humid spot of ecuador is that you would expect to see actually you would expect more fungi because the place is a lot more human humid that that if you look at uh, canadian babies but yes there's definitely changes when we looked at different human populations how they happen we we're, we're still not sure um one of the things though that that i think supports this notion that as we have cleaned up ourselves and our societies we have lost lost some of our microbial um companions if you may is that the studies of um, mice that have been rewilded into the environment so of course we all use laboratory mice and and these come from strains that have been passage for many many years and they have been raised and born for many generations inside of of laboratory spaces and um there's been really interesting work where they have released these animals into just 
outside the the environment. Um, there's also been experiments where they have tried to colonize germ-free mice with microbiomes for what from wild um, rodents as well. And in in those cases, what you find is that yes, the diversity is a lot higher outside than compared to the the laboratory, the classic laboratory mice. And one of the features is the the appearance of of yeast. So in, in these mice, in very clean laboratory mice, one, uh, not, not in all of them, but one of the things that we have found is that it's very rare to find fungi. In right. fact, we almost have to give it back to them. But here we have the stories showing that you just let them outside. Not only do they acquire yeasts as well as other eukaryotic forms that you were alluding to before, but then there's a big immunological response that happens from, from that. Right. And so what kind of proportion do, do yeasts or do fungi make up in the microbiome, both in terms of their, um, I suppose, just their physical amount, but also, I suppose, in their genetic potential? So the proportion of them being there, but also the proportion of how, how much they're contributing, I suppose, to our to microbiomes. Do we have kind of estimates of that? Yeah, there are some estimates that about 0.1% if we look at just the, the counts of, of cells or, you know, colony forming units, as we would use in, in microbiology, they have much larger genomes, about 100 to 200 times the size. Um, at the same time, one of the things that I've come to learn, and this is from the field of community ecology, is that when you look at ecosystems that have, of course, different forms of life, they, they form all these um, structures or webs. And in, in many cases, these webs are going to be... Um, are going to be established from a number of different drivers, but one of the, the most important ones are food webs or these trophic levels of who eats who and who eats what other ones are making. And, and those are really one of the strongest forces of, of ecosystems. And what we have found is that in microbial ecosystems, just like in macro ecosystems, you don't really have to be numerous to have a very impactful uh, role in that web and in that food web. And, and you know, the classic example is uh, predators, top predators. If you look at ecosystems out in, in just a microbial world, right? You, you don't need that many wolves or you don't need that many lions to have a massive effect in many different species in, a, in an ecosystem. And even more importantly, in the, in the production or the productivity of, of these ecosystems. So the functional component of an ecosystem. What they have studied in microbial ecosystems is very similar. Uh, the, the presence of protists, for example, these are animals that actually feed on bacteria as their main nutrient source can be very large, even though you can compare the number of, of uh, protists to the number of, of um, bacteria that you have or the, the, the number of viral particles that, that you have. And the same can occur with fungi, especially because they have this really um, unique, if, if you may, ability of changing their, their biochemical machinery to use different types of nutrients that can be present or not in, in the gut. Um, so yes, numbers are important and genome sizes are definitely even more important. But what I've come to learn is that uh, numbers are definitely not, not everything. And that in fact, having a smaller numbers of, of a important member of an ecosystem may be an advantage versus having many numbers. 
Wow. Yeah, I like that analogy. So the fungi in the gut could be kind of like the wolves or the tigers, you know, they're, they're central to that web or that um, hierarchical chain of, of feeding, I suppose, um, be it around viruses or, or bacteria or whatever. Yes, I mean, yeah, and, and from from a predatory perspective, um, not so much fungi because there's a few that will digest bacteria, but for the most part, they're really good at just um, eating what many different uh, fungi are producing, so they can compete for for nutrient sources in a more effective way. But another thing that fungi are really well known for, and again, you don't need to have many fungi for this, is antibiotic production. So they have many mechanisms of interacting with the bacterial world, if you may, that can give them an upper hand or uh, uh, the opposite of that in, in, in this micro ecosystem. Wow. So it sounds like, from what we know, their main functions are to control that ecosystem and, and what's in it, like, you know, produce antibiotics that maybe control certain types of organisms that are in there. Do we know, do they have any other kind of main functions like what has been characterized for bacteria that maybe they produce vitamins? Do they digest certain nutrients well? You've mentioned kind of immune interactions. Is there anything else, kind of these clear functions that some of these um, fungal species have that, that we know Not about? Not yet. So this is very much at the at the edge of what we're trying to, to find out. Uh, there, we do think now from some early experiments that they have a role in modulating our metabolism, our energy metabolism, comparing mice that have fungi with mice then, then don't, and, and looking at, at several metabolic markers in the host, we find um, differences, but it's still very early to understand how that is occurring. Um, yeah. But um, I, I actually speculate that, that the more we look, the more we'll find. Right. Well, what, I mean, previously in the past, people have looked at fungi as they did bacteria, I suppose, in their kind of pathogenic state and how they cause disease. Um, and so I suppose they can, depending on the situation, depending on the environment, they can be what some people call as pathobionts, so that they're perfectly normal and they're in, present in healthy people, but in certain states, they can, you know, become disease causing. I think one of my favorite actually examples of this is a, a really rare condition called uh, auto brewery sy syndrome, where, you know, some people have uh, some fungi in their intestines and actually produces alcohol and makes them feel drunk. Very, very rare. But, you know, in, in certain states, uh, you know, fungi can cause disease. And that's what we know uh, a lot about them. So a lot of people especially in the fields of nutrition and become interested in the microbiome, become really interested in candida and say that, um, oh, I think I have a candida infection. Whereas we all have various strains of candida, but it's just in certain circumstances they can become disease causing. So have you looked into this or what do we know about candida, about its normal functions and why it can become disease causing in, in certain circumstances? Um, what we have found is that candida, as well as other yeast, has the ability ability to to flare or overgrow, but only and this is a feature of of um, these opportunistic pathogens, only when given the 
advantage to do so. So on its own, it's kept in check by many other mainly microbiome driven mechanisms. So bacteria produce a ton, a ton more um, in general biochemicals in, in the gut, many of which have antifungal properties. Short chain fatty acids is one of them. So if you have a depletion in some of these metabolites, you will see, you, you can see um, a flare in, in candida species. And if that dysbiotic state continues, so if the, ability, the bacteria lose that ability to, to regain um, predominance in, in the gut, candida can continue and, and will, will, will continue not only to predominate uh, a lot more in that ecosystem, but it, it has the ability to gain access into the host and to look for nutrients in that host. And it can, it can, it, it can make um, films in the gut. It can also become infectious. It can become septic too. And in fact, when we look at um, hosts, so as, as an example, um, immunocompromised hosts, or if we look at people that are in intensive care units, for example, and, and they, in many cases, lose the, the, you know, barrier integrity, as well as immune components that, that will look after their defense of microorganisms. One very common septic organisms um, are, are candida and other fungi as well. So yeah, when given the opportunity, they will look for resources inside of us instead of just the, the lumen of our gut. Really. But would you agree to say that they don't, they wouldn't cause a huge amount of gastrointestinal issues in day to day in, in regular people? They're, they're more associated with these kind of severe infections, or do you think they actually do have a role in things like IBS or maybe more severe conditions, IBD, or is there evidence for that? Yeah. Well, um, again, so in, in those in, in inflammatory conditions, they definitely can have a role. There's really interesting, um, work that coming from the IBD field that have shown that some of actually the, the genetic predispositions that make someone more likely to develop IBD, uh, like the CART9 card um, genetic susceptibility, it's, it's uh, completely directly involved in fungal immune recognition. So that, that's, that's actually what it does. Um, it's common also to find flares of yeast preceding flares of IBD in Crohn's disease. Um, so, and, and there's now really interesting work coming out showing that, yeah, indeed, some of the immune responses associated with IBD are the same ones that are triggered by fungi and fungi can definitely aggravate. So I think they do, of course, have a role in disease. Now, when we look at health, so if we look at a non-disease state, it, everyone has fungi in their gut. It would be just like saying that, that bacteria are implicated in, in, uh, in inflammatory diseases. Of, of course they are. They're, they're involved now, we know, even in, in cancer and the response to, to cancers. Um, just, just like bacteria, I think what we're going to find is a wide range of interactions between ourselves and the mechanisms that keep us homeostatic or healthy and those that don't. So I think we'll find a, um, a bit of both. Right. And so kind of on the, the flip side of the coin, you have these um, fungi which can potentially cause disease in certain circumstances, but there's certain fungi that actually have shown to be probiotic per se. So the one that's 
kind of commonly known, although some people might have heard of it, is uh, Saccharomyces boulardii. And that is, is often used as a, as a probiotic alongside bacterial species. So what do we know about that fungal probiotic and in what kind of conditions is it, is it used for? Or does it have evidence yeah. for, for So like with uh, the majority of the probiotics, and this is a bit unfortunate, we only know kind of like the tip of the iceberg. Like we know... Um, in what conditions sometimes they're effective at, at, at working at, you know, battling or helping with, with a infection or a disease, but we know very little of how it's happening or even if they're directly involved or indirectly involved in whatever result they may have. And Esbulardi is a good example of them. So um, they ha there's actually good studies of, of them um, showing that if they're given, in addition to antibiotics, they reduce the risk of, of um, diarrhea that can be caused by antibiotics. So lots of pediatricians use Esbulardi as well. Um, and um, how it's happening, it's it's really not known, or at least I'm not aware of any studies that have shown whether it is that it you know, becomes a member of the microbiome and by doing so it prevents pathogenic bacteria to take in hold or if they produce a particular uh, biochemical that, that uh, will somehow balance the microbiome after. It's, it's, a, it's really a big question mark. So we don't know how, how they work. We know that there's a lot of saccharomyces normally, especially in babies, we find a lot of them. Um, but what exactly they're doing, this is super early days for that. Oh, well, you'll be finding it out soon, probably, with all your, your new work. Um, so you mentioned kind of babies, and I kind of want to finish off on this because that's a lot, what a lot of your work is at the moment. And you've shown before how the, the early life microbiome in babies um, may influence some immune-mediated disorders, asthma and allergies. Um, but there's not been a lot of work about how uh, fungi may play a role in this. So what have you learned by this? How may fungi be educating the immune system, you know, in the gut to then affect a lung disorder such as asthma? What are the kind of processes that, that can lead, or lead to that connection between fungi, the gut, and then the lung? Yes. Um, well, there's actually quite a lot that we're interested in now and in that regard, um, alluding to what I was saying before, fungi are pretty unique and, and distinct from bacteria from just the structural point of view, the, the building blocks of what makes their, their walls and, and different parts of, of, of their cells. And these different patterns, microbial patterns, are recognized differently by the immune system. And we do know quite a bit. So for example, um, chitin, which is part of their exostructure, and beta-glucans, which is part of their membranes, and the, uh, the, the patterns that they package up in extracellular vesicles, they have been studied for a while. Their immune responses have been studied for a while. And in many cases, what you're looking at are immune responses that are aligned with the type of inflammatory response that an asthmatic gets. So the classic asthmatic, the TH2, IgE mediated, um, fungal 
patterns induce some of the same ones. And in fact, asthmatics in many cases, and, and people can, it's, it's a very frequent allergy to respond to fungi in the environment. In many parts of the world, when it becomes really hum humid outside, you see more mold, and then you start to see more, more asthmatic attacks in the community. What we believe may be happening is that just like bacteria, fungi can be part of these early life education events that can prime the immune system to respond or not um, strongly to, to many of these patterns of, of fungal structure. Um, and this is some of what we're seeing now in babies. So early in life, if you look at their microbiome, if you look at their fungi, there's strong, and in many cases, stronger associations with those changes early in life and then the risk to develop um, asthma later on. So uh, the mechanisms of how this may be happening are pretty obscure right now. There's a very interesting study that um, alludes to there being um, cross immunity between some of the candida species that inhabits the guts and the and the antibodies that um, react to spores that we inhale in the lung for example. So cross-reactivity, humoral cross-reactivity may be one of those mechanisms. That's the only one that has been described so far that can somewhat clearly uh, explain the gut-lung axis, but I believe there's many. Um, it, it, uh, we're, we're seeing that early in life, mice that have fungi versus mice that don't have a different immune system and that when given an antibiotic those animals that have fungi versus the ones that not uh, don't have a, a stronger predisposition to overreact to lung inflammation once they're they're giving an antigen to do so um, so we I, th I think that's strong evidence to 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 show that yeah fungi are definitely important early in life and they can be more conducive to asthma, certain fungi, of course, only in certain individuals. Um, and uh, I don't think that, um, I, I think they, they, they complement the stories that have been published already from the bacteria. Fungi are definitely not the only contributor. We're looking at an ecosystem that contributes to immune education and the potential risk to an allergic disease. Um, I think my argument is that we're better off if we study it together than if we just kind of silo and, and only study fungi versus studying only bacteria. Yeah, it's all, uh, all an ecosystem. So yeah. how do you see the future then of, of the microbiome research? You know, do you see more fungal probiotics in the market? Do you see kind of treatments that target the fungal microbiome or do we learn more about the kind of uh, metabolic output of, of fungal mm -hmm. microbes in the gut? Or, or what do you see happening or what would you like to see happening in the next few years to, to learn more about our fungal microbes? I think that if we start including in those large studies from, you know, microbiome observational studies to studies that are looking at therapies, if we start including fungi, we'll find out that, as we have found out also, that they do have a role in impacting that ecosystem. So if we want a more integral 
therapeutic or preventative that, that is going to target the microbiome, we're better off if we take into account the ecological role that these members of that ecosystem have. Um, and if not, we may be missing out on um, potential uh, that, that you know, we, we could harness by including them and what, what they may be doing. And in some cases, if we don't pay attention to them, we may perhaps miss um, collateral result that we're not expecting or hoping for because we just decided to overlook at, at the, the fungi. So we're chatting before about their ability to, to overgrow. So it's important that whatever we're testing is also tested in, in, in the fungi and the role that they may have. So thanks for listening to the Biomes podcast, sponsored by Microbiome Insights. My name is Dr. Ruri Robertson. Tune in next time for some more exciting insights into the latest developments in the human microbiome.